Now, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but one of the greatest temptations for a preacher is to be inoffensive. Um, If I offend you today, it's constantly on my mind, if I offend you today, are you going to come back again next week or next month? Uh, If I honestly tell you what I believe Jesus is saying to his church, and if that's a hard word, will you feel that I'm judging you personally? If you leave here feeling rotten today because values that you hold dear are challenged to the core, are you going to thank God for opening the eyes of your heart to things that you need to change in your life? Or will you curse the preacher for his narrow-minded and impossible expectations and find somebody else more accommodating for next week? And so there's the temptation, you see. I don't want to offend you because, hey, you might not be back. It's easy to be the preacher who's willing to make you feel good about yourself. It's easy to be the preacher who affirms exactly how you live. It's easy to be the preacher who agrees with the decisions that you make um, and, and who teaches what is appealing to the flesh. It's easy to be the preacher who encourages you to make God the king of your chosen lifestyle, make God to fit what you've, the way you've already chosen to live. It's easy to be that preacher because it's just as appealing to me as it is to you. What it's not easy to be is a preacher who reads the word of God, is deeply and personally challenged about his own lifestyle and then has the task to share what he knows is going to be a very difficult word to receive because it's totally against our culture in which we live. To the Christian church of affluent modern Western culture, all too too often the offence is all but totally removed from the gospel. There is a lie being preached in churches today that is against Christ, it's against his teaching and it's against his example And it leads to spiritual poverty for all who receive it. And it's not the Antichrist. There is a current of false teaching lulling congregations into acceptance of all kinds of fleshly desires and it's got nothing to do with sex. There is a sin which is being affirmed and often promoted under the guise of a blessing of God. And that sin is the love of money and a selfishness of possessions and wealth. In a lot of churches today, you'll be taught that being blessed with money, having a lot of money, that's a blessing from God. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And get this, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, whenever I've heard that passage preached on, most of the time has been spent on saying how actually it's not that difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's hard. It's hard. Not impossible. With God, all things are possible. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The absolutely confronting 
teaching of Jesus is it matters what you do with your money. It matters what you buy. It matters how you use what you buy. It matters what you give to the poor. And it matters what you spend on yourself. It matters what you invest into your business and it matters what you invest into God's business. Every one of these things is a spiritual decision. Every time you take your credit card out of your wallet or a leaf out of your checkbook, cash out of your purse, direct debit or BPAY out of your bank account, PayPal over the internet, or even if you decide for your money to stay where it is, every time you spend money or choose not to spend money, you are making a spiritual decision and you are making an investment. And there are two kinds of investments. There's temporary earthly investments and there's permanent heavenly investments. We all store treasure. I store treasure. You store treasure. The question is, where am I storing my, my treasure? And that's the question I have to ask of myself. That's the question you have to ask of yourself. Okay, so what is treasure? When we think of treasure, we often think of, of pirates running around the beach. Ha ha, treasure me, ha What do we count as treasure? Well, biblically, the concept of treasure is what are you storing up? What are you accumulating? It might be money. It might be land. It might be houses. It might be machinery or livestock or shares. It could be superannuation or life assurance. It might be electronic gadgets or tools or sheds or guns or cars. It could be ornaments or flowers or maybe household items, electrical goods or furnishings. It could be paintings or stamps or coins. Maybe your treasures are things like books or DVDs or musical instruments or boats. Or maybe your treasures are less quantifiable. Maybe you've invested heavily into expensive education for your kids or holidays. Restaurants, wines, cigarettes, counteries, flat white lattes. You've invested into what you can no longer see or touch. It's been consumed. No treasures, or rather no earthly treasures, are lasting. So what is the fate of treasure? Consumables are consumed and stuff does not last. Apparently a rich person in California was buried, propped up in her sports car with sunglasses on and a scarf around her neck and the crane operator who was lowering the car into its concrete vault was heard to exclaim, man, that's living. No, it's not. That's death. When you die, you're dead and you can't take anything with you when you go. The pharaohs used to have their treasure and their slaves and their wives sometimes buried with them so that they'd have them with them in the next life. And then, of course, grave robbers had come along later on and dig it up. Every earthly treasure you accumulate, whether it be money or farms or toys or houses, you might enjoy it for a while. It might give you satisfaction that you've been able to pass it on to your kids 
but it won't last. The only treasure that lasts is the treasure that is stored in heaven. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are drawn into a radical transformation of our values. And possibly nowhere is this more evident than when it affects our hip pocket. What is treasured by men is of no enduring worth in God's sight. And real treasure involves earthly poverty. So how do we store treasures in heaven? I'll tell you how. We begin to value what God values. You begin to to desire what God desires. And you put it into action. Jesus said something in the middle of this teaching which seems quite enigmatic, quite mysterious. He said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What a mysterious thing to say. Um, Does anybody other than me get bamboozled with what he's talking about there? You've got to remember, Jesus is teaching us about treasures. And then he plonks this right into the middle of it. He's teaching us about money. He's teaching us about stuff and what we do with it. And in the Greek, the word good literally means single. And it also applied in a financial sense. It meant to be generous. It also meant to be wholehearted. Okay, so the simplest explanation I can give you of this mysterious saying is in the context of Jesus' teaching on possessions, it's about being wholehearted for God. Everything that you have, be wholehearted for God. Be wholehearted in generosity. And it starts with the eyes. Generosity or miserliness begins with the eyes. I'm not too often tempted to buy something by a radio advertisement. But if I see something, that's a different matter. Um, I think it was only last, was it last year the HSV Maloo was at Halpins? Every time I drove past Halpins while that Maloo ute was parked out the front, I wanted it. I saw it, it was the most beautiful motor vehicle I've ever seen in my life, and I wanted it. I used to avoid going, going past Alpens because I got an attack of the wants every time I drove past it. When you see something, and you've all been there, you've seen something you want, and it begins with your eyes. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we should look not at Maloo-Newt's, shame on me, but toward heavenly riches. Desire heavenly riches and be generous. See what God sees and awaken within you the desires that are God's desires. See the hungry and feed the hungry. Be moved to compassion by what you see. See the sick and the poor and pay their medical expenses. If you see a brother or a sister struggling under the burden of debt and you have the means to help them, do it. Pour your money into Christian ministries and into missionaries 
Support Christian workers who have given up a chance of what we consider a normal life, given up careers, given up family time, whatever, to go and preach the gospel. Sponsor a child or sponsor a dozen children. Do what you can afford and free up your wealth so that you can afford to give. When I was in primary school, the old school port had a sticker on it and it said, live simply so all may simply live. I thought that was a great slogan. I still think it is. But I'm not so good at doing it. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, felt that the Christians should not merely tithe but give away all extra income once family and creditors were taken care of. He believed that with increasing income, what should rise is not the Christian standard of living but the standard of giving. This practice he began at Oxford and he continued throughout his life. Even when his income rose to a thousand pounds now in the seventeen hundreds that was a fortune. He lived simply and he quickly gave away all his surplus money. Raise not your standard of living, but your standard of giving. We live in a world where wealthy Christians like you and I often voice the mantra, I'm blessed to be a blessing. But I don't very often see the fruit of that. Constantly those who have less give more. A bit like the widow giving a mite when Jesus was standing there, the money box going by. Whereas those who see themselves as being blessed to be a blessing bless themselves with more and more as the standard of living increases. And I see that in myself. Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. If I'm rich, My standard of living should remain simple so I can give more, accumulating treasures in heaven. Where you and I store our treasure reveals a lot about our hearts. When your heart is set on God and when your heart is set on God's kingdom, sorry, when your heart is set on God, when God and his kingdom is your wholehearted desire, you won't be spending money on your standard of living. You won't be spending money on more shares or more houses, on expensive holidays or the latest gadgets. If your wholehearted desire is for God and his kingdom, then you will be investing in his kingdom. See, if Jesus Christ is our Lord, he already owns everything we have. If Jesus is my Lord, he already owns everything I have. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, he already owns everything you have. And he wants us to be investing his assets assets into his kingdom. 
you know what? We deny God by tying it up. We buy more than we need, bigger houses than we need, bigger farms than we need, flasher cars than we need, more lavish lifestyles than we need. We deny God by convincing ourselves that we're not rich. Well, let me tell you, if you have at least two meals a day, if you have a mattress and a blanket and a roof over your head, if you have access to education, if you can go to the doctor when you're seriously ill, well, you've got to face the fact that you're wealthy. By world standards, you're wealthy. By historical standards, you're wealthy. And in an age of credit, we deny God again by, by tying up our treasures for years to come. In this age of credit, there's now three classes of people. There's the haves, the have-nots, and they have not paid for what they have. And increasingly, we are becoming they have not paid for what they have. And we commit ourselves to interest and capital payments for years and years, and then we tell God, God, I've got commitments I can't afford to give right now. And before those commitments are fully met, we commit ourselves again. And the excuse just rolls on. We make a loss on paper. And then we tell God that we've made nothing, but all the time we're paying off more and more stuff. Who are we cheating? Who do I cheat when I do that? Who do you cheat when you do that? I haven't even started on super yet. We accumulate, accumulate enormous superannuation next eggs under the principle of being financially responsible. Some people put away millions of dollars taking advantage of tax concessions, salary packaging or whatever. Also, we can enjoy a comfortable retirement. Whose money am I tying up when I do that? Now, I hope you don't think I'm picking on any one person or any one segment of, any one segment of society. All of this stuff, you know, usually when I preach, I'm preaching at me. And you guys get to listen in on what God might be telling me and maybe God might be telling you the same thing. And my prayer is, God, change my heart so I value what you value. I am deeply, deeply challenged by what Jesus said in this passage this morning. And I know that I have to make some major changes over the next few months and years. And I've got a lot of questions that I want God to give me answers for. Like, is it right for me to spend 20 years paying off a house? Or should I sell it and buy a smaller humpy? Jake didn't know what humpy meant the other day. We were talking about a humpy. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. He knows what a humpy is now. so that we're not tied up for 20-odd years. Robin feels she's telling me to work less and spend more time in ministry, and I think, well, God, how does that all fit in? What do I free up to make that happen? Did I? Oh, Robin feels God's telling me. The question is, do I listen to Robin or do I listen to God? It's fairly different, yeah.
And as I begin to wonder how I might put these changes into action, anxiety starts to happen. How will I provide for my family? What if we should go short? And you know, every one of you might come to that same thing. Well, God, if we don't save so much for our retirement, then what are we going to do when that happens? Or, you know, if we don't put this money aside for this, then, then we're going to be paupers, whatever. The anxiety starts to happen. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. Trust me. Don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear. I'll look after that. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these other things will be given to you as well. What he's saying is he's not going to see you go without. What you need, he will provide. might be everything that I want, but he'll provide everything I need. And same for you. So what's the message here? What's Jesus saying? Are you, are you saying to me, Michael, that we should sell everything we have and give it all to the poor? Well, that's a question that you have to ask God. Because sometimes that is the answer. There was the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus and said, what else have I got to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he went away really sad because he had much wealth. I actually think that the point of that story is if you love your money so much that it's keeping you from being obedient to God, or maybe you have to give it away. But Jesus didn't say that to everyone. As far as I can remember, he only said it to one person in the New Testament. Because Jesus knew his heart. So what should we do? Firstly, agree with God that everything that you have is already his. Secondly, live simply and give greatly. Thirdly, when you give, give thankfully because you are grateful for what Christ has given you. You know, don't ever get it into your mind that by giving stuff that you're getting a better place in heaven. That's not what you're doing. God has given to you greatly in Jesus Christ and therefore we give because we have a heart like God has a like God's heart. Fourthly, John Wesley used to ask a question which can be helpful for us. Will God reward me for this expenditure at the resurrection of the just? <laughs>